Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Guess what, everyone? Because of the amazing response that you all have given to the 4athletics.com sponsorship, they have just signed on to sponsor two more episodes. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. And believe me, I love all of our sponsors. Every sponsor that I personally endorse is something that I personally use and love. But there's just something about a small company that really has to crunch the dollars and cents and look at their budget decide where to spend their money in advertising. And the fact that 4Athletics is such a huge supporter of this show and they've decided to sponsor two more episodes is really, really cool. So if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. 4Athletics has some of the most amazing, high-quality, and durable athletic apparel that I've ever worn. And all of their clothing is 100% made in the USA. Did you know that less than 2% of the clothes worn in this country are actually made here? And 4Athletics loves being a part of that 2%. Their clothes are made here in America, but they'll ship anywhere. A lot of listeners have asked me if they'll ship internationally, and the answer is yes. And remember that 4Athletics is crowdfunded to keep their amazing high-quality products at a very, very low price. So go on to 4Athletics.com, check out their products. Remember, you're going to see that track bar at the bottom that will tell you what percent funded each product is. As soon as an item of athletic apparel is fully funded, within two to four weeks, you'll have it at your doorstep. And that crowdfunding model is what keeps their Lululemon-quality clothing at incredibly low prices. And because you're Truth and Justice listeners, and they are so supportive of this show, they have extended their offer for 15% off for two more weeks. So for the next two weeks, go to 4Athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH for 15% off of their already amazingly low prices for incredibly high-quality athletic apparel. That's 4Athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and it has been yet another crazy week. We've had several new developments in the Edward Aids case and some new information that I'm going to go ahead and call a bombshell in the Kerry Max Cook case. I'll be honest, with some of this new information that I'm finding, I still can't even wrap my brain around it. 40 years of looking in the wrong direction, and it looks like we finally may have a conclusion to this case. So for the first segment today, we're going to go back to Edward Eight's case. In today's episode, I'm going to follow up on the Kubia episode. We're going to walk through a few theories as to why Elnora might have told Kubia that she was sitting there talking to Edward. Then after the break in the second segment, you're going to hear an interview that is absolutely going to blow your mind. But before we get going with all of that, I have a request. Many of you are constantly sending me emails asking me what you can do to help. And I appreciate every offer. And there's always something that comes up. 
Well, right now I need some help with something that just about anyone with a little bit of computer skills and a little bit of time can take care of. For over a year, listeners have been begging me to put out an apparel line. People want truth and justice swag, and I love the idea. It's a great way to raise money for the movement. It'd be really cool to see people representing when we go to events like hearings or meetups wearing truth and justice apparel. I've started looking into this several times, and the problem is I just don't have the time to see it through to the end. So what I'm asking for is if any of you have the time to follow this through from start to finish, to get a set up where we can offer some truth and justice swag, please send me an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. I'll of course be there to consult with you as far as what we put out and what the designs look like, but I need somebody that can take the project all the way from finding the company to make the shirt, to distribute the shirts, and get them shipped out. And there's companies that do all of that. I just don't have the time to mess with it. So if that's something you're interested in doing to help, please send me an email. Also, I have a couple of fan meetups that I want to schedule if there's interest. So send me an email or a tweet or a Facebook message if you'd be interested in attending a fan meetup in Nashville, Tennessee during the last weekend of July or in Kalamazoo, Michigan sometime in August. If you'd be interested in attending either of those events, send me an email, a Facebook message, or tweet at me and let me know. And now that we're done with the housekeeping, let's get right into that call from Kubia. Kubia Jackson telling the police and testifying in court that on the night Elnora Griffin was murdered, that she had called her and Elnora told her that she was sitting there talking to Edward. Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson, has been and continues to be the biggest mystery in this case. Like I told you two weeks ago, after talking to Kubia, I don't believe that Kubia is lying about this. I believe that at the very least, she believes this is the truth, if it isn't in fact the truth. And at the same time, I believe Ed when he tells me that he was not there that night. He didn't call her. He didn't go down there. He was never sitting and talking to her. Him being down at Elnora's house at 10 o'clock at night is just not something that would ever happen, according to him and according to Johnny and Kubia. A lot of you have sent in emails with theories on this. One of the most popular theories that I've had emailed into me is that maybe Elnora was telling Kubia that she was sitting there talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson, in order to alert her that something was wrong. The idea being that Kubia would realize when Elnora said this that there's no way that's something that would ever be happening, and by doing so that Kubia would realize that something was wrong and either go check or send somebody to go check on her. And maybe even that by saying Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson, she was trying to hint at Kubia to get a hold of Mrs. Dew's, to maybe send Ed down there. Because remember, Johnny's at work, so the next closest person would be Mrs. Dew's, Edward's grandmother. I think that this is a plausible theory. It may not be the most likely reason why this happened, but it's definitely a possibility. Kubia did testify at trial, and she told me over the phone that Elnora did not sound like she was in any distress. And that's the one thing that makes me think this is somewhat unlikely, although again, I'll admit that it's plausible. I think that if someone was sitting in front of Elnora, someone who she knew was going to cause her harm, it would be very difficult for someone who's never been in a situation like that to keep themselves calm and collected, and then have the foresight to hatch an elaborate plan, whereas she would tell Kubia something that was completely absurd and hope that Kubia caught on to the fact that something's wrong. 
but that is a possibility. Another theory that's been thrown at me several times is that the person who was sitting in front of Elnora told her to say it was Edward that was sitting there. Maybe she was being held at night point or something like that. And when Kubia called, the assailant told her, don't tell them it's me, tell them it's someone else. And again, that's another plausible theory. But my problem with both of those theories is why would the assailant, if they were in there to kill her, why would they allow her to answer the phone? Rather than have her say she's sitting with someone else, it seems to me that the easier solution would have been to tell her, don't answer it. If it was the killer sitting there, letting her answer that phone would run the risk of her blurting out, so-and-so is here and they're trying to kill me, or something along those lines. It's a huge risk to take. So because of that, I tend to lean towards the idea that Elnora did not know that the person sitting in front of her was going to kill her. But if we believe Ed that he wasn't there, then why would Elnora say that he was? Well, in my opinion, the most likely theory comes from evidence collected from Elnora's phone records. In the discovery file in Ed's case, as well as in the trial exhibits, we find Elnora Griffin's call log for the months of May, June, and July of 1993. Unfortunately, we don't have complete phone records. All I've found in the documentation that I've had available to me is Elnora's phone bills. Now remember, this is back in 1993. There were no cell phones at that time, and this is a time when when you called the town right next door, it was long distance. So this phone bill does not list any local calls or incoming calls. The only thing we have access to is long distance phone calls that she made. But still, there's enough information there for a start to piece together what was going on in Elnora's life in the months leading up to her murder. There are a lot of calls to a lot of different numbers listed on this phone bill. And for those of you that have been keeping up with the case documents on the website, I will not have the phone log up on the website. And the reason for that is, is because it has people's phone numbers on it. So in order for me to protect people's personal information, I would have to redact out all of the phone numbers, which basically would leave nothing on the phone record. But on this phone record, I want to focus on these three phone numbers. Two out of the three, I was able to trace back and figure out who they belonged to in 1993. One of the phone numbers is Leonard Mosley's. One of the phone numbers is Lionel Williams. That's the man with the white Corvette. And the third number is still unidentified. For those of you that follow along on social media, you may have seen a few weeks back when I put out a call to the Truth and Justice Army asking for a listener around the Tyler area to take on a mission for me. A few people volunteered, but I want to throw a big shout out and thank you to listener Gina. Gina had traveled from out of town to attend the Carrie Max Cook hearing, and then after the hearing, she ran this errand for me. What I was trying to do was track down this phone number. It wasn't coming up in all of my usual online background searches. I couldn't find it anywhere. And what I needed Gina to do was to go to Kilgore to the public library and pull out a copy of a 1993 Kilgore phone book and search for this phone number. And unfortunately, what we found was that in 1993, that phone number was unlisted, so it still didn't lead us anywhere. However, Gina was able to pull older phone books and find this phone number. But the name that was attached to that phone number is not a name that any of us have heard before. 
So tracing down that phone number is still an active investigation. And we will get to the bottom of it. I have a few different resources to try and figure it out. But the reason this phone number is important is that I believe, based on the pattern of the calls that I'm about to explain to you, I believe that there is a likelihood, now I'm not saying this is fact, but I believe that there is a high likelihood that that phone number was Francis Johnson's. The tricky part about Francis Johnson is that he never really had any roots. He didn't have a house of his own. He stayed with his mother sometimes and other people other times. So I can't just look up Francis Johnson's phone number from 1993. He didn't have a phone number. But as I went through the three months of Elnora's outgoing long-distance phone calls, this number appears several times where Elnora calls someone at this number late at night, talks to them till all hours of the night, and most of the time only calls on the weekends. Now you'll remember, Francis Johnson was supposed to only be able to come home on the weekends. He could get a weekend pass from the halfway house in Georgia. And these phone records are from the exact time frame that Kubia Jackson gave in her trial testimony as to when Elnora was dating Francis Johnson. She said at trial that Elnora was dating him between the months of May and July of 1993. And after looking through all the phone records, it appears that Francis was either staying somewhere that was a local call or Elnora never called him during those months because I've been able to identify every other phone number on that log. Now, for logistics sake, let me explain to you that where Elnora lived was still a Tyler address, but it was right on the border of Kilgore. Just a little ways down the road became Kilgore, and Kilgore was a long-distance phone call. Letter Mosley's phone number, for example, was a Kilgore long-distance number, and he only lived eight or nine minutes away from her. So that was the first thing that I did with these phone records. As I was trying to identify patterns to figure out who these numbers were that she was calling, once I had the patterns, then I did background checks and researched the phone numbers, and like I said, I was able to identify two out of the three. The first number, I noticed a pattern that there were only daytime phone calls to this number on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. On Monday through Thursday, the calls always came in later at night. This seemed to fit Leonard Mosley's work schedule. And sure enough, when I checked it out, this was Leonard Mosley's phone number. The other number was sporadic. I really couldn't figure out who this person was, but it was a person she called on a regular basis. And the things that I was looking for were phone calls that were made late at night for long periods of time. The assumption being that the only people that a 47-year-old woman would be calling late at night and talking to on the phone for long periods of time on a regular basis would be someone that they were romantically involved in. Once I ran the background checks, I found out that that second number indeed belonged to Lionel Williams. So let me first break down kind of the sequence of the calls during those three months as quickly as I can without getting too overly complicated. And then I'll explain to you why this may explain Elnora telling Kubia that she was sitting there talking to Edward. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we first look at the month of May, it seems like that's when Eleanor's relationship with Leonard Mosley was still going along just fine. With the exception of one call on a Friday night, all of these evening time longer calls were made to Leonard Mosley. On Friday, May 7th, she made two calls to Mosley. On Sunday the 16th, we have two calls to Mosley. And then here's one that I found interesting. So Leonard Mosley's testimony was that he always worked the 11.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. shift at Tyler Pipe and that he didn't get home until after midnight every night. But here we have a Monday evening, and again, this number is confirmed. It is absolutely Leonard Mosley's phone number, where she called Leonard on a Monday night at 9.10 p.m. and spoke to him for 25 minutes. And then the following Tuesday, she calls at 7.21 p.m. But that's a one-minute call. So those one-minute calls, I'm assuming, are calls that were not answered or that an answering machine picked up. But then we have that Friday night, the 21st. At 8.10 p.m., Elnora calls Leonard Mosley and talks to him for four minutes. And then about 25 minutes later, she calls Lionel Williams and talks to him for 10 minutes. Now, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, no one seems to know exactly the relationship that Elnora had with Lionel. Kubia wasn't sure. She knew that she talked to her a lot. Johnny basically said the same thing. It was Francis Johnson who said that she was dating this Lionel guy, that he was the reason they broke up because he was staying in her house. But in any case, it seems that towards the end of May, Elnora was feeling a bit conflicted. Because we have on the same night, a call to Leonard, followed by a call to Lionel. She calls Leonard again the next morning, and then we move into June. We have a Saturday call to Leonard Mosley on June 5th. But then on Friday the 11th, we have a call to this unknown Kilgore number. The number that I believe is possible is the number where Francis Johnson was staying. And again, I don't have confirmation on that, so I'm just going to refer to it as the unknown Kilgore number. But on a Friday, when Francis Johnson could be back from Georgia, she calls this unknown Kilgore number. And then later that night, she calls Leonard Mosley. The next day on Saturday, she makes three calls to Mosley. And then Monday, we start to see a pattern with Mosley that makes me wonder if his testimony about his work schedule is accurate. Remember, we had some questions about his timesheet. The numbers on that sheet did not add up. Something seems off about that timesheet. Well, that night, on a Monday night, June 14th, Elnora calls Leonard Mosley at 10.38 p.m. Now, that's a one-minute call. Seems like he missed the call. But then she calls back almost exactly an hour later at 11.39 p.m. And then she calls back again about an hour later at 12.47 a.m. But the point here, and you'll see this pattern develop as we go on, is that Elnora is consistently calling Leonard around 10.30 or 10.40 p.m. on weeknights when he's supposed to be working until after 11. Now, if Elnora and Leonard are dating and she knows his work schedule, why would she be calling him at 10.38 p.m. when she knows that he doesn't get home until around midnight? It could just be that she's leaving messages for him, but it just struck me as odd. She calls him again the next night and again the night after that. Now then the next day, that Saturday, she calls and talks to Lionel Williams twice. But then we have the next day, Sunday, June 20th. So again, this is a weekend. 
when Francis Johnson could get a pass to be in Tyler and away from the halfway house in Georgia. That Sunday morning, Elnora makes two one-minute calls to Leonard Mosley, followed up with a call to that unknown Kilgore number, followed up with three more calls to Leonard Mosley. Then the next day on Monday, again she calls Leonard Mosley at 10.48 p.m. It's another one-minute call, but again she's calling way before, according to his testimony, he should ever be home. Then that Thursday, the 24th, she calls him at 10 o'clock in the morning. Then Friday, the 25th, she makes two more calls to Leonard Mosley, both one minute each. And the pattern that we're seeing here is she's constantly making calls to Mosley, sometimes two, three times in a day, back to back to back. And a lot of times in the evening, it looks like she's almost setting an alarm. Well, she'll call him at 1048, and they'll call him exactly one hour later, and they'll call him again exactly one hour later. But she doesn't seem to be getting through. And we don't know if Leonard called her back because we don't have her incoming call records. But then on Saturday, June 26th, again, a weekend when Francis Johnson could be in town from Georgia, Elnora uses her calling card and calls from work to that unknown Kilgore number, and they talk for 10 minutes. And then as we get closer to the 4th of July, we start seeing this unknown Kilgore number popping up over and over and over again. Now remember, according to Ed and his mother and Johnny Pryor, Francis was in town during the 4th of July weekend, and that was the time when he was there building the pond. And here we have, on a Monday, at 9 o'clock at night, Elnora calls this unknown Kilgore number. Now, Francis Johnson should not be in town on a Monday night. She calls at 9 p.m. for one minute, and then again at 10 p.m. for 27 minutes. So they had a conversation. And again, given the duration of these calls, it literally looks like Elnora uses a timer. If she calls somebody and can't get a hold of them, she waits almost exactly one hour and calls them back. But that night, again, she calls this unknown Kilgore number at 9. She calls that number back an hour later at 10 and talks for 27 minutes. And then 20 minutes after that, she calls Leonard Mosley. Again, this is at 10.47 p.m. when he shouldn't be home on a Monday night. That's a one-minute call, and then she calls again about an hour later, another one-minute call, and then she calls again about an hour later, so now we're after midnight, another one-minute call. So three attempts to get a hold of Leonard on that Monday night that all followed two calls to this unknown Kilgore number. Then we have Wednesday night, the 30th of June. She calls Leonard Mosley at 11.14 p.m. Again, a weeknight when he's working, when he shouldn't be home at 11.14 p.m. Another missed call. So then we move on to July. And we start with the 4th of July weekend. July 4th was on a Sunday in 1993. In Friday the 2nd, she starts her morning off with a 7.30 a.m. call to Leonard Mosley. They talk for three minutes. Then at 5.55 p.m., she calls Leonard again, a one-minute call. Then at 9.14 p.m., she calls that unknown Kilgore number again, a one-minute call. And then at 10.32 p.m., she calls Leonard Mosley and talks for eight minutes. Then we move on to Saturday, the 3rd of July, and starting at 8.39 p.m., we have four calls in a row to Leonard Mosley. At 8.39, we have a two-minute call. At 8.51, we have a 22-minute call. At 10.05, we have a six-minute call. And at 10.42, we have a 16-minute call. Now, all we can do is speculate based on phone records. But to me, the multiple calls, and these were not missed calls. These were answered, and there was conversations. Two minutes, 22 minutes, 16 minutes, six minutes. I don't think that we would be too far off the mark to speculate that Elnora and Leonard were fighting. 
It's very odd that you would have a conversation, hang up, call back 20 minutes later, talk for 22 minutes, hang up, call back a half hour later, talk again, hang up, call right back, talk for 16 minutes. I think it's very possible that someone was being hung up on during that time. I've had these nights myself. I'm sure some of you have too. But the last call to Leonard that night was at 10.42 p.m. They spoke for 16 minutes. So that means they spoke until 10.58 p.m. And then 11 minutes later, she calls that unknown Kilgore number again. That's at 11.09 p.m. After multiple calls with her boyfriend Leonard, she calls this unknown Kilgore number after 11 o'clock at night. That was a one-minute call. It was missed. And then an hour and a half later, just before 1 o'clock in the morning, she calls that unknown Kilgore number again, and they talk for 106 minutes. So whoever this unknown Kilgore number belongs to, it's someone that she called after multiple calls to Leonard Mosley, and then she calls them at 12.49 a.m. and talks to them on the phone until 2.35 a.m. And Elnora didn't get much sleep that day, because she got off the phone with that number at 2.35 a.m., and at 7.23 a.m., she's back on the phone, but this time she's calling Lionel Williams, and they talk for 14 minutes. And then at 2.35 p.m. that afternoon, she calls the unknown Kilgore number again and has a conversation. So the rest of that week goes on, and then we get back to another Friday night. Friday night, July 9th, Elnora starts her evening off at 7.21 p.m. by calling that unknown Kilgore number. And again, this fits with Francis Johnson. Everyone I've spoke to says that Francis was there the week of 4th of July working on the pond, and he was there that weekend. And there's calls to that unknown Kilgore number all during that time, and then nothing during the week until that Friday night again. So we have that Friday night, the 9th, the 721 call to the unknown Kilgore number. One minute, probably left a message. Then at 9 p.m., she calls Leonard Mosley, one minute. And then one minute after that, calls the unknown Kilgore number again, has a four-minute conversation, and then calls back 10 minutes later to that same unknown Kilgore number and has a 51-minute conversation. And as I was going through these calls and this number kept coming up, I got back a hold of Kubia. I called Johnny back. I asked if Elnora had any other friends in town that she might be talking to on the phone this late at night. Nobody seems to know. Elnora didn't have a lot of friends locally. Remember, she's from the Dallas area, and she'd only been living there a few months. And this is someone that she's so close to that she's having a nearly two-hour conversation up till 2.30 in the morning with this person. That's part of the reason that leads me to believe that it could be Francis Johnson's number or someone else that we're unaware of that she was romantically involved with, which according to Kubia, there was no one else. There was only Lionel, Francis, and Leonard that she's aware of. But again, on that day, Friday, July 9th, we see that pattern again. She calls the person from Kilgore. No answer, calls Mosley, goes back to the person from Kilgore twice. Now the next call we have is on the 14th of July. This is a Wednesday night, and at 9.36 p.m., Elnora called that unknown Kilgore number and spoke to whoever was on the other end for 36 minutes. This could be significant, because if we can figure out who that number belonged to, and if it does indeed belong to Francis Johnson, this would be proof that Francis Johnson was not in Georgia during that time, that he was in fact in Tyler. Our breakdown of Exhibit 137 proved that that document doesn't prove that he was in Georgia, but it also doesn't prove that he was in Tyler. It just shows that he could have been. 
but these phone records could be the key to prove that he was there. So we have a Wednesday night at 9.36 p.m. She calls this unknown number, talks to that person for 36 minutes. And then we have Friday, July 16th. Now, this is after Angela Walker has moved back in with Leonard Mosley. We know that they are broken up at this point. Angela Walker had moved back in with their child. And we also know from her trial testimony that Angela Walker goes to work on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. And also, according to Leonard Mosley, he was still visiting Elnora on Thursday nights and spending the night with her. So on this Friday morning at 7.23 a.m., that's after Angela would have went to work, we have a 23-minute call to Leonard Mosley again. And then no other calls to Leonard during that weekend. Now, we do know that Elnora's kids were in town during that weekend, the weekend of July 16th, 17th, and 18th. They went home on Sunday the 18th. And on her phone records, at 5.21 p.m. on Sunday the 18th, Elnora again calls that unknown Kilgore number and has a conversation for 17 minutes. And then five minutes after they hang up, she calls that number again and has a conversation for three more minutes. So whoever that number belongs to is someone that Elnora wants to talk to she's talking to on Sunday. But then Monday rolls around, and at 11.20 p.m., Elnora calls Leonard Mosley's house. Now this is a problem. This is the first time we see in the phone records where Elnora called Leonard's house when Angela was home. Leonard and Angela testified that it was about two weeks before the murder when she moved in. During that two-week period, we only have the one call that was at 7.23 in the morning on a Friday when Angela would have been at work. But then we have this Monday night call at 11.20 p.m. Now, it's a one-minute call, and this was before caller ID even in 1993, or at least it was in my area. So maybe it went to the machine, or maybe Angela picked up and she hung up, but it's very likely that Angela was home when Elnora called her house at 11.20 p.m. that Monday night. But then we have the next night. And again, this is very significant if we figure out who this number belongs to. Two days before the murder, on July 20th, 1993, at 8.03 p.m., Elnora calls this unknown Kilgore number and talks to them for 61 minutes. So she has an hour-long conversation with somebody at that number two days before her murder when Francis Johnson testified that he was in Georgia. Although with my analysis and breakdown of Exhibit 137, it appears that he wasn't paid for working in Georgia during this week. But at 8.03, she calls this unknown number, talks to that person for an hour, and then 30 minutes later, she calls Lionel Williams and talks to him for 14 minutes. And that's the end of the phone records. There's no long-distance calls on the 21st or 22nd. She was murdered the night of the 22nd, and the phone was disconnected on the 29th. So what does all this mean? Why did you just listen to me break down a bunch of phone calls for the last 20 minutes? Well, in Elnora's case, we don't have much to go on as far as victimology. We only have what the few friends that she had have told us. We have no diary. We don't have a large network of friends. We're very limited on the background we can get on her. But these phone records start to paint a picture for us of what was going on in her life in the couple of months leading up to her murder. Let's assume for a minute that that number does belong to Francis Johnson. Then what these phone records show us is that Elnora was juggling these three different relationships. 
Now, please don't take this as me throwing any disrespect towards Elnora. Her and Leonard Mosley were broken up. The status of the relationship with Lionel is unknown. And Francis said that their relationship was never anything serious. So Elnora was perfectly within her rights to be dating more than one person. She wasn't exclusively attached to anyone. But she's making a lot of late-night calls to three different people that she's seeing. In one case, all three of them in the same night, even. And judging from the phone record, she seems to be someone who is very persistent. You see on multiple occasions where she's trying to get a hold of Leonard or that unknown Kilgore number. Where she calls, no answer. Calls again, no answer. Calls again, no answer. Calls again, maybe has a conversation. So like I said, I don't see anything wrong with the way Elnora was living her life at that point. However, there's someone who may have had a problem with it. And that's Elnora's friend, Kubia Jackson. When I talked to Kubia, I was asking her a lot of questions about Elnora. And one of the things that we discussed was church. From what Kubia told me, she's always been very involved with her church. She always has and still does always go to church. She goes to all the revivals. She's very involved in her church. And I had just asked her in passing if Elnora went to church with her. And she told me Elnora didn't really go to church. She said she would show up every once in a while and visit, but she wasn't a regular attendee at the church. And as we got into talking about Elnora's relationships, Again, she told me that she didn't know what the deal was with Lionel. She knew that she had been dating Francis Johnson. And when we got to talking about Leonard Mosley, she told me in no uncertain terms that Elnora and Leonard were broken up and that Leonard had moved some other woman in with him. So how is that important? Well, it may lead us to the reason why Elnora might have told her she was sitting there talking to Edward when in fact someone else was sitting in front of her. The impression that I got from Kubia was that she and Elnora were very, very close. They talked about everything. And I think that a possible explanation could be that if Elnora was in fact sitting down talking to Leonard Mosley, that she would not want Kubia to know that was happening. Kubia did not seem happy about the fact that Leonard had moved Angela into his house. She didn't know Angela, but remember Leonard Mosley's testimony and Angela Walker's testimony. Leonard didn't tell either one of the two about the other. He had told Elnora that he moved Angela in just as helping out a friend, that they didn't have a romantic relationship. But they were, in fact, sleeping together. And he even testified that shortly before the murder that Elnora had found out that he was sleeping with Angela, and as he put it, she wasn't very happy about it. So put yourself in that situation especially you female listeners that maybe have a tight group of friends that you share all of your intimate details of your life with. It's not that guys don't do that too, it's just that we usually bullshit about it and don't give the real story. But if Elnora had told Kubi about this, and Kubi knew that Leonard had actually, in her mind, and truthfully it's exactly what happened, had cheated on Elnora, but Elnora was still cooking a meal for Leonard and having him come over to her house, if Elnora thought that Kubia would not approve of that or that would judge her for that, and Kubia called and heard someone and asked who was there, I think that another plausible theory could be that she threw out a name of somebody that was completely innocuous. The neighbor's grandson is over. And that maybe she only did that so that Kubia wouldn't know that she was still entertaining this guy that she knew had cheated on her.
Now, with all this being said, I have to admit that the phone call from Kubia is still a mystery. All we have to go on is speculation and theories. But I think that if Kubia was telling the truth, and Ed is telling the truth, that the scenario I just laid out is probably the most likely scenario. But even more importantly, once I'm able to track down that phone number, this call log could be a huge break in the case. We are one step closer to putting this puzzle back together and figuring out what was happening during this time. And the call log may be the thing that reveals where Francis Johnson actually was on the week of the murder. And besides that, I've also had some new developments in the case and a couple of new leads. And I'll tell you about these things as soon as I can. Right now, I'm still sorting them out and making sure everything checks out. And for those of you that do follow along on Twitter, you saw me tweet a couple of weeks back that I found some new information that if it checks out, it could be a bombshell. And a lot of people have been emailing me asking about that. And all I can tell you about it right now is it didn't check out in exactly the way that I hoped it would. The reason I said that I need to see if it checks out is because it seemed too good to be true, so to speak. And as it turns out, I was right. It was a typo. The person that sent me this information had transposed a couple of numbers. But with that being said, I do still have another big lead in that same direction. And again, I don't mean to sound coy, but it's just something I can't talk about until after I have it completely sorted out. But what I can tell you about is new information that's been revealed by a closer look at the crime scene. A couple of things that I missed the first time around. And that's what we'll be discussing next week. But for now, in this week's episode, we're going to take a break to hear about our sponsors. And then I'm going to play for you an exclusive interview with Michael Valentin, Luella Mayfield's son. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After I spent some time last week analyzing the crime scene, it became apparent to me that this crime scene indicates that the unsub who committed the murder against Linda Jo Edwards would be a young female with a propensity towards violence and compulsiveness that had a personal grudge against Linda Jo Edwards. As I told you last week, the person that seemed to fit that profile the best would be James Mayfield's daughter, Luella Mayfield. Now, that doesn't mean that she's the one that did this, and I'm not accusing her of committing this murder. But she does fit the profile, and a profile is tended to give us a direction to begin our investigation. The way I work these investigations is I first start from the outside and I work my way in. I contact close friends and family members to try to get some background on the individual we're talking about. And the first person that I was able to get a hold of was a man by the name of Michael Valentin Jr. Michael Valentin Jr. is Luella Mayfield's son. Now you'll hear throughout the course of this interview him refer to his mother as Francis. So don't get confused by that. Francis is Luella's middle name, and apparently that's the name that she prefers to go by. So when you hear Francis, he's talking about Luella. 
Here's my interview with Luella's son, Michael. First of all, your name is Michael Valentine, right? Yes, sir. I am the son of Michael Valentine Sr., who uh, Luella Francis Mayfield had shot in um, 1985 and attempted to kill him for insurance money, but was unsuccessful. Okay, so so Luella is your mother. That she is, unfortunately. Okay. I guess since you mentioned that, the first, can you tell me what I, I just heard about the fact that she had shot your father? Uh, mm-hmm. What were the circumstances around that? We just buried him last year. He died from cirrhosis of the liver from complications from that shooting just last year. What happened was uh, she she thought he was worth more dead than alive, and uh, she attempted to obtain a life insurance policy on uh, in the amount of $1 million. We came home one day. They got a phone call from the insurance people looking for uh, Francis Valentin, and he said, well, Mr. Valentin, how can I help you? He's like, well, the Social Security number on this policy for Mr. Valentin is wrong. He's like, what policy? I don't need no policy. I'm a union construction worker. I got a half a million dollar policy. What's, what's she trying to do? Well, this is for a million dollars. He goes, holy crap, what's this woman trying to do? Kill me? They're joking about it, you know? Uh-huh. And he tells them, you know, I'm not interested. We don't need that. I have my own. They never even brought it up to her. And I, she thought it was in effect, and, and the policy was still good. And he came home one day. All his uh, credit cards were all racked up. He, he couldn't. He was denied gas at his store. And uh, he came home, you know, irate and upset. She ran upstairs and uh, grabbed the gun. And he ran upstairs, you know, to see what the heck's going on. And he was looking. He sees this thing pointing at him, he said. And he took one more step up. And next thing you know, he woke up in the hospital. He lost his right arm. Yeah. She shot him with a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun. They pumped 56 pints of blood into him uh, back in uh, 85 when they didn't test for uh, AIDS or hepatitis C. So... Unfortunately, he caught a bad bag of hepatitis C, and here, 30 years later, it cirrhosed his liver, and he died. Oh, my God. So this this happened in 1985? Yes, November of 85, yes, sir. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry about your dad. I tell you, uh, not, not, he, I'm glad he got 30 years, more years out of him. You know, he didn't deserve it. You know, he was, he was a good man. You know, he, he always did everything he could for anybody. And it's, it's just it's amazing how this woman just comes across people's like Carrie, perfect example. Okay, he never even met this woman, and she took thirty years from his. Took to my father died thirty years later, and she took thirty years from Carrie. Isn't that amazing? It, it's insane, man. So, Absolutely. would you say she took thirty years from Carrie? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, I I, I unfortunately when I was young, I was rebellious. I didn't like my father's rules and regulations at a certain time. So, you know, he he sent me to live with this crazy woman. And, you know, I found out real quick that, you know, that she is just absolutely insane. And, um, like, she was stealing my checks and everything when I used to work at the schedule rink over there in, in Aldean Westfield in Houston, Texas. And uh, we got into a fight one day, and then I, I called her a murder and everything. I said, you know, I, I, she, had, I, she had the police uniform, the security uniform in, in her closet. What um, what are you talking about the the uniform that uh, she had worn when she went the to... uniform that was worn worn by by the woman that was knocking around him. Yeah, it was it was that same exact one. And I told her to her face, I said, That's probably the same one you wore when you killed that lady, Linda Joe Edwards. And she said, She I'm listening to her words that he was I did that because she hurt my mother. And that's when I grabbed my stuff and I ran the hell up out of there. I hopped on a friggin' train. I ended up in some coffee plant somewhere there in Texas and all I remember was a bunch of Mexicans and they put me in this place called the Covenant House and then they sent me on a plane back to Jersey, man. It was it was crazy. Oh, um, this yeah. uh, I just I, I I know you've probably told this story before, but I just had chills run down my spine. Did you did you say that she confessed to you that she killed Linda Joe Edwards? Yeah. Well, she she her exact words to me were, "I did that because she hurt my mother." That's what that's what, that's the way she told it to me. That's what I remember hearing, you know. And uh, my, my 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 whole 
life growing up, my father used to tell me, he said, you know, there was this picture of this woman that used to be sitting on the bathroom toilet. And he, he says, you know, one day he just, you know, got, he, he got tired of it. He walks out and he says, you know, who's this friggin' woman looking at me every time I take a piss? And she says, oh, that's my best friend, Linda Joe Edwards. And he was like, well, who is she? She's like, oh, she was mutilated. She was all cut up. Somebody cut her eye and her vagina and her tit and her, her ear. And my father was like, what the hell are you friggin' nuts? Why the hell would you want to be reminded of that every single day? You know, my father always thought that that was like her sadistic kind of, you know, way of like, you know, I, I put you in the bathroom toilet, like I, I crapped on you or, you know, I put my back toward you. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I mean, like, who, who, who does that? You know what I mean? If you, if you had a friend that you were something that died it's such a horrible, tragic way. Why would you want to put that somewhere you got to see every day? I mean, it's, to me, that's just absolutely insane. So you know? She, so she kept, years later, after the murder, she kept photo of Linda jo, a photo of Linda Jo Edwards in your bathroom? I mean, my, yeah, my father, well, my, my father's bathroom in Texas when they, were, when they were together. You know, that was in the 80s, you know, 84, 85. But yeah, that was, what, five, six, seven years later, yeah. Oh, um, my God. My father, my father, you know, my, my, my father did investigate because that Dan, Danny Han, David Hanners, I believe his name was, mm-hmm. the same one that was in working with Carrie with his case was the same one that ended up doing the case with my father as well. Came to my father's bedside when he was dying in the hospital from the shooting, and 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 told my dad about you know uh, how this this uh, th- this mutilation was very similar to one in a book called The Sexual Criminal. My father obtained this book and, and he had it for the longest time. Current Affair came to the house when I was a young child and they took it and they they have it. Um, but you know it, 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 that the way that it was the way that woman was murdered was the same way it was in that book. It's to the T. I mean, to the T. Oh wow! And, and that I, and so that that guy you were talking about, he's the one. He was the reporter with the Dallas Morning News, right? Right, and I think he then he went to the um, the something Tribune or, or the um, something what Colorado, I don't know, the Twin Peaks or some crap like that, somewhere more north. But his name was Danny Hannon. I spoke to him a few times, and. uh you know, but I mean, it's like I said, it's just, it's crazy. You know, that was in 77. My father was shot in 85 and he was the same reporter, you know? Oh, wow. And, did, yeah. did Linda uh, have a copy or excuse me, not Linda. Did, did your mom Luella, did she have a copy of that book or how did the book come up when uh, uh, he brought that book to your dad? My, my dad got the copy of the book when he went to, uh, after he got out of the hospital in Texas, and then he heard this from David Hanners, what he did is he went to the library in New Jersey, West Orange Library, mm-hmm. public library, and he obtained it from them. And, okay. um, right, and then the current affair got in touch with him, you know, I guess they were trying to do like one of those, uh, like Black Widow cases, kind of like the ID channel does, you know? Right. And, and and they obtained it all from him. They still have it. And that, that shows the reason he started back up again. So I mean, I'm sure they have it locked away in some file. Or some room, but uh, yeah, they sure came and interviewed us back in the early nineties. My God! So did yeah. did your dad believe that Luella killed Linda? My 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 father honestly believed that Luella was the murderer. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you got to understand it too. You know, she she tried to kill him and murder him. You know, she she shot him with a twelve gauge and, and and tried to shoot him again, but she jammed the gun. You know, this was all planned and thought, you know, she, she, she grabbed, she found some guy named Mike Rapano who looked just like my father, uh, Italian guy from up North. Uh, this one happened to be from New York. Uh, you know, cause when the cops came to his bedside, they're like, you know, where are you looking so surprised you got shot for it? You knew you had a gun in the house. You bought the damn thing. And my dad told him, go, go screw yourself. I never knew we had a weapon in the house. And the cops said, Oh yeah. The Italian guy, slick back hair, brown eyes, tattoos, that shoot to the T buddy. No, it was the other guy, Mike Rapano. She found another guy, had him go in there, take the ring that my father gave her, and pawn it for a damn shot, made him go in there and buy it. 
to make it look like my father bought the damn gun. And it was years later, I had to end up going to testifying for this guy, Mike Ritano, because she tried to sue him for half of his business that he started in 1980, in 1982, uh, the Ritano's saying that she was with him when he started the company. So when they split ways, she was entitled to half. Well, I told the judge that's impossible because I was born in 83 and she shot my father in 85. So the judge kind of, uh, you know, was pissed off about that. He, when she shot my father, she was, she received five years probation with a deferred adjudication. Uh, because she enraged that judge so much, what he did was he made sure that shooting was put back on her NCIC so she could never do it again for one. And, and, and for two, um, you know, uh, Mike Rotano, this, a lot of people don't know this, but when I went to Houston, one time to visit my brothers. I, I told them, you know, do not invite Ma. I don't want her anywhere around. But she ended up coming to the Golden Corral. Me and her ended up getting into a dispute because she threatened to shoot me like she would my father. And uh, I, I was enraged. And I think, I, you know, I probably hit her with a chair or a table or something. I'm not exactly sure. But I was arrested for uh, assaulting a family member. I was looking at 18 years in prison. Okay? This guy, Mike uh-huh. Rotano, I wasn't none of his son, none of his family member. I was nobody, this guy. But his way of saying he was sorry for buying the gun to shoot my father was he hired Dick DeGarren, the highest paid criminal defense attorney down there in Houston, Texas. And that man got me a $5,000 Class C traffic misdemeanor ticket. And I walked out of there in Houston, Texas, <laughs> with no time on my hand. You know, I mean, I, I, in my, in my to answer your question, yeah, I believe, I believe she did it too. You know, my dad always said Jim was soft. Now, now Jim has a, uh, uh, an enragement and an anger. You know, I went to, I went to his house one time and, and uh, he he said something to me and I, I answered back, hey, or, or yeah. And that wasn't acceptable to him. And man, he, he snapped out. And he, get the hell out of my house. Who do you think you are talking to me like that? I mean, you know, and uh, and I snapped on him too because my aunt, uh, Stasha, who lives down there in, in, in Texas, or, you know, she had a recording with him on the phone. And I believe we still have this recording. Uh, he admitted to it. He said, I, well, I knew Francis was going to shoot Michael. And she asked him, she said, well, why, if you knew, why didn't you try to warn him? And he got real quiet. And he says, well, how are the kids doing? You know? And, and right. So, I mean, you know, I, 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 he, he's, the, he's, he's the barker, but he's not the biter. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I, I'm pretty, he manipulated, you know, maybe put it in, in, I don't know, maybe he was, I don't, it, it's hard to say who was ever there. You never get the truth, you know, she'll take it to the grave. Uh-huh. She's a pathological liar. And I mean, that's all she's ever been, you know, but, but the thing about it though is, 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 you know, they need to get her on the stand, man, because I'm telling, you know, one thing about it, a liar can never remember the lie. They can only remember the truth. So whatever she told back then in 85, in the 70s or 80s or whatever, it ain't going to be the same. And, and, and that's just like everybody fails to understand. I just, I don't get it. And now, you know, I don't know. I just, I, she, she needs to, she needs to pay for what she's done. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a shame why good people have to die and leave this world. And, and and people like her that just you know have no intention of ever being good or doing anything good in life you know still get to walk around and ruin other people's lives man it's just it's sad. Was she was uh you, now Luella normally went by Francis. Francis, yeah, she okay. she she tends like Luella Luella Francis. She tends to like that the way that it is right, right there, Luella Francis. Okay, uh, now she did she seem to have like psychologically other than just if she was pissed off or whatever, but was she, oh, yeah. she was she just she in general there. off? Well, no, no. If you spoke to her, if you spoke to her, she spoke to you like what a, what a woman of knowledge and, and sense. But that's only because she read things. When I stayed with her, I, I used to you know go to her room. This is how I found it: the police uniform and or the security uniform rather, and, and these other things. She, this woman had books on like uh, 
how to lie and get what you want, how to manipulate people to make them believe. You know what I mean? Like psychological books on, on crazy and, and, and stuff to pretty much, in my theory, it was like, you know, they had to believe a lie and believe the lie so much that you honestly think it's the truth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, and to make other people to believe that as well, you know? Um, I'm telling you, she was good, you know? Like, well, one time I used to, I used to, when I was staying, I used to wake up and swell and everything. We used to have a cat, and my eyes would swell up. And here, I, she was telling me I had cat scratch fever, and I honestly believed it. And here it was, I was getting bit up by freaking fleas and bugs the whole time. I never knew it, you know? But, but she would make me believe that that's what it was. Like, she she would look at me with the with it, the most serious face in the world and say, oh, yeah, you got the cat, the cat scratched you, and you got problems, you know? And then... I'm looking. I got a damn scratch on me, but I believed it. You know, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Did she? Now, you, know? you said that she had several different names or alias. Had she been married several times, or had she changed her name? Um, well, married to Mike Rotano, not like officially or legally, like she was with my father. They were by common law. Okay. Um, so those would be the only two. But what she, but with him, what she tried to do was when you know she was she married my father in um, in in '84, I believe, or '83, uh, when I was born. And she shot him in 85, so the divorce didn't happen for some time in 86 or 87. I have the divorce papers here with me. I can tell you exactly. But what she tried to do when her and Mike Rotano split, she tried to tell the judge down there that she was with him when he started the business in 1982. Well, that's impossible, because I was born in 83, and you shot my father in 85. Right. So, and so, yes, yeah, so she tried to do that, and I had to go down there and testify for Mike Rotano. I guess they, they were married. My father and her were married on February 27th of 1982, and their divorce, divorce was finalized in July 20th of 1992. So it could be impossible that she was with, you know, Mr. Rotano 10 years earlier when he started that business, you see? So she was but with Rotano after your dad? No, she was with Rotano while, while my, they were still married. Remind you, she was, she got, she's the one that got this man to, to purchase the gun to okay. shoot him because. When I first went down there, he he took me. I didn't even stay in the house five minutes. He pulls me out, takes me in his tow truck, and drives me off to this racquetball place over there off the Hardy Tow Road. And he sits me down and he says, "I'm sorry." I said, "Sorry for what?" He says, "I'm the man that bought the shotgun that shot your father." And I said, "What the hell, man? Why didn't you warn him or anything?" He goes, well, "What am I supposed to do? Call your father up and say, hey, 'Hey, I'm screwing your wife, but she's going to kill you.' How, how's that going to work?" And, and to an extent, I understood. But you know, I said, "You know." If you had some damn common sense, you just think about it. My father worked every day from nine to five. If she was so friggin' abused and everything, like she told everybody she was, the reason why she shot him, why not pack her crap and me and my sister and get the hell up out of there? You had ample an opportunity every single Monday through Friday. Right or wrong? Right. The fact that you bought the, that you had this gun purchased by you, traded in your, your, your engagement ring to, to purchase it, that's all premeditated. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't care who you are. You know what I'm saying, and and that's why it might it might my, like I agree with my father. Like she she's the one that was in, you know, had her hands doing with with Linda Joe, and you know she was the one that went knocking around all the doors. It wasn't a man dressed up in a woman in a security uniform. It was a woman knocking on all those doors over there. You know, if they seen anything, and then two, you know, two two weeks later, then the real cops come. Was she a violent person? Oh yes, no, she's, yeah, she's very she she was very violent, man. Uh, Man, she was uh, she would have rages, man, just snap. I mean, I'm telling you, one time, you know, Kenneth, Kenneth was living on the streets one time. He used to steal cars, and she wanted him to park it on her toe and just she'd get the money for it. He said no. She tried to, this was on Christmas Day, she tried to run him off the road and call the police on him. She was trying to run him down with a tow truck. <laughs> you know, just oh her own son, her own son, supposedly. Yeah, I mean, she was, man, I'm telling you, she was some serious. Do you know she, what? She got money. She got in my face at the Golden Corral that day and told me, hey, that's why I put my hands on her. She told me, if I don't get out of her face, she'll shoot me like she did my father. That's what she told me. 
Can you describe for me, you know, being the fact that she was adopted? I don't, I don't even know what, I don't even know what race she was. Can you, like, what did, back in, you know, in your early childhood, like, how would you describe her physically? I mean, my, back in the day, she must have been surprised. But, you know, that, the, the way I remember her, she's, you know, nothing to brag about. I mean, I'm telling you. Was she, she, uh, was, she was a white lady, right? Uh, yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, she hails from she hails from Ireland. Okay, uh, she is she's Irish. She's got reddish, reddish, blondish hair. Okay, uh, freckles. You know, um, and uh, you know now you know with smoking and everything else, she's just she looks horrible. I mean, it is right. I, I, it's, I mean, I, I, you couldn't if you looked at me, looked at her, you wouldn't you wouldn't even see a resemblance. I mean. How was I'm she... so glad I got my father's features, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> how was how was she she built? Was she tall, short, thin, heavy? Uh, she was. She was. Uh, she, she would. I would say she's probably five ten, uh, overweight. Now you know she. I would. I would say two two sixty two eighty. She was a big, 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 big woman. Uh, when uh, when I when I you know when I went to live with her when I was fourteen thirteen years old. But now when when when. She married my father, of course, and you know, she was, I guess, in her prime or whatever. She was, you know, she was thin in shape um, okay. and everything like that. But she was tall. You know? She was five foot ten. Yeah, yeah. She was. She was like five ten, five eleven, something like that. She was about the same height as my father. Okay. I remember. I remember when I went down there, and I was about, you know, five, five ten, five five nine, something like that. I, I mean, she came up. I came up right to her. So yeah, she was. She was tall. Okay. But with that still being said, too, you know, it, it, several. I, I mean, there was several accounts. My father said that you know she she uh, in public, you know, that that people heard that she threatened to kill this woman if, if she didn't stop seeing her father. You know what I mean? It just yeah. it, 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 I, I, I don't see the man. I, I don't see men that statue. You know, having that that you know holding that position of authority at, at, at this college, knowing that you know you you got that. You know, behind the dean, whatever it is, it's still it's 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 a, it's a position where you know, like a suit and tie type of job, you know, white collar, getting your hands dirty or something like that, you know. But but here you got a woman that you know attempted to, to kill her husband, uh, uh, tried to take a, a another husband's business that she had no dealings with at all. You know, all, all these, you know, these, these repeti- all these repetitious crimes. It's just, you know, what I mean, it, to me, I, it, like my, I'm like my father. You know, she did it. You know, and it was what she told me. You know, she heard exact words me. Well, I did that because she hurt my mother. You know, and and my father—that's what my father believes. My father believed that she came home. Uh, this is my father's story. He always said that that Francis came home, and 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 uh, Freddy was crying, and she probably asked her, you know, what's wrong? And she, you know, oh, that woman was here, and 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 Jim went chasing her. So uh, my father said, you know, it's probably Francis went out there to her house, and and probably seen them two engaged in you know sexual. Uh, you know, affairs or whatever, and she, she waited. Got in Jim's car or truck, maybe went through his personal stuff and found this book, The Sexual Criminal. Started reading it, waiting until uh, he came down. He comes out, she dips out the car, he leaves, she goes in there and kills him. And, and, and kind of a thing like, oh, you think she's sexy now? How does she look now? All, you know, cause that was my father's theory. You okay. know, and, and that, that's what he believes. But now, um, you know, others would say that, you know, they did it together. My father just, he doesn't see it. My my father always thinks that you know it was my mother, and, and I'm like that too. I'm I'm so glad you took the time to talk to me because I mean this has been 40 years, and no one has publicly even considered the fact that it was anyone other than either Carrie or Jim. Well, I mean, with, with Carrie, I mean, I don't know much about Carrie's involvement. You know, I I did time in prison, you know, but I only did two years. You know, stupid crap, and nowhere near compared to what this guy's went through. I mean, and you know, it, it's a sad shame. 
But, you know, it's my understanding where he had one fingerprint outside her window, right, this woman, Linda Joe? And then they found hundreds and all these friggin' fingerprints inside the damn place that had nothing to do with him, you know? Now here, years later, you know, this guy, not even his friggin' DNA is found scene. It's like, how much more you got to find out before you, you let the guy just let him, let him have his friggin' freedom back and say, hey, he didn't do it, you know? Uh, and, uh, I mean, I'm not no fool at the same time either. He obviously wasn't the role model citizen or something. These guys must have had a heart on him for something, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know what it is. I, you know, it's not my place or my business to know. But, you know, my father always said, you know, you, 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 you cause problems, you know, that you're going to be the, the problem solver. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'll, right. they'll, they'll find a way to make you that, that, that problem in the end. So I'm not saying that's what he deserved. You know, nobody deserves anything what he's went through. But, you know, but I mean, it's just, it, it's so sad, man. It really is. I mean, you know, it's just, it's like, it's like my father always would tell me. You know, my father, he never sugarcoated anything. When we were growing up, he didn't say, oh, you know, you, your mother was this or that. He, he said, you know, your mother's a killer. When you were lived with her when you were a teenager, do you know if she, did she still have that photo or was it gone by then? I, I never saw it. The only thing I ever saw was that damn, that police uniform. And, okay. and, you know, and she lost that in the flood over there in Houston, the Great Flood. That took out Greens Road and Green Branch subdivision and all that because that's where we lived at 1302. Uh-huh. But my but my brothers all saw this Matthew, uh, Stephen, Kenneth. Uh-huh. I mean, because I'm the one that pointed out to them and showed them. I said, "You see that? You see that police and security uniform?" And they were like, "Yeah." I said, "What do you think she has that for?" I said, "Oh, mommy used to be a security guard." I said, "Yeah, no, she was never no security guard." You think anybody would know about mommy give this woman a badge and a gun? You're crazy. I said, "You know, they yeah. she she killed a woman back then. That was that was what she used to take to make sure she had no witnesses." And you know, and Kenneth was the only one who was like, "Well, why would she still have that? That's evidence." That's not why she's keeping. She keeps it as a trophy. That's that's that 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 trophy thing. Like you know, I got away with it. Here's my here's you know what I'm saying. Did you did your mom ever have any kind of counseling or psychological help that you're aware of? No, no. I, I believe she's always lied and been beaten away out of everything. I mean, there's you know, if she had any psychological kind of counseling, I'm sure she messed their minds up. They end up seeing a psychiatrist. You know. What I'm right. <laughs> Hey, I'm I'm gonna let you go for now. I think I've got everything I need. But um, as things go along, would you mind if I get a hold of you again and if I need to oh, fill man, in any blanks? No, man. Any any time, man. Call me anytime. I got I got no problem telling you. Know, it's, uh, if I can get you know more of my family involved and maybe tell you like my Stasha who recorded the conversation with Jim about him knowing that you know, she was she was gonna shoot my father and everything. I got I got no problem with that, man. Okay. I'm telling you, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that needs to be told, man. Everybody's pointing the finger at Jim. I'm not saying Jim's a good guy. Uh, he, he's definitely, he's got his hands just involved. I mean, you know, he, he, he paid for the attorneys to, to cover up for, you know, my father being shot and everything else. I mean, he's, he's just as sorry as she is in my book, but you know, she, she's the mastermind. Is it without, she's the one that, you know, pulled all the strings without question. It wasn't him. She's the one, she's the one everybody needs to be looking at. After recording this interview with Michael, I was in a bit of a state of shock. If what he just told us is credible, then we may have solved a 40-year-old mystery. A mystery that ended a young woman's life and nearly took the life of Carrie Max Cook. Remember, Carrie was nearly executed for this crime that he did not commit. His life, these past 40 years, have been taken away from him. Carrie will never get back the 20 years that he spent behind bars and he'll never get back the 20 years living his life as a convicted murderer. And all of this was due to a police department with blinders on 
in a prosecutor's office that insisted on getting their conviction at all costs, regardless of who actually committed the crime. And they're not the only ones to blame for this. James Mayfield has now admitted that he lied in every deposition, every police statement, every trial testimony for 40 years. His lies have helped contribute to Kerry Max Cook's life being taken away from him for these past 40 years. And whether he was lying to cover up the fact that he killed Linda Joe Edwards, or for the fact that his daughter did, or was just lying for the sake of lying, as far as I'm concerned, James Mayfield is guilty of attempted murder because Kerry Max Cook went to prison to death row to be killed based on his lies. And as I've taken a deeper look at this case over the last week, I believe that James Mayfield not only knows who killed Linda Jo Edwards, but I believe that he was there. Even if he was just there to cover up and help clean up the crime scene. I went back to the trial testimony and read through Paula Rudolph's statement, where she described the person that she saw in Linda's bedroom the night of the murder. And one thing that I had never noticed before is that Paula specifically described the torso of the person that was in that room. She said that the person that she saw had their shirt off and that they had a dark, deep, golden tan across their entire body with no tan lines. She describes this in detail. If that testimony is accurate, she did not see a woman in that room that night. She also didn't see Carrie Max Cook in that room that night. Some people may argue that maybe if it was Luella in there that she saw, that she had her shirt and bra off cleaning up after the murder. But it seems highly unlikely in 1993 that a woman would have her shirt and bra off and not have any tan lines. I believe James Mayfield was standing in that room when Paula Rudolph came home that night. And this whole case just continues to frustrate and infuriate me. A lot in part due to the fact that no one seems to want to do anything about it. Smith County is still fighting Kerry Max Cook's actual innocence. And I wondered if they would even care about this new information. So rather than wonder... On Monday, I got on the phone and spoke with one of the assistants in Matt Bingham's office. I told him that I had profiled the crime scene, that I believe we're looking for a young female killer, and I told him that I had gotten a hold of Michael Valentin Jr., Luella's son, and that he told me that Luella had confessed to him. They asked me if I would send the recording to them, which I have done, along with a full report on the profile and how I reached the conclusions that I've reached. I don't know if Luella Mayfield killed Linda Jo Edwards. I don't even know if Michael Valentin's story is credible. What I do know is that it is enough probable cause to warrant an investigation, an official investigation. If the Smith County DA's office actually cares about finding the truth and bringing justice in this case, then they will take this statement seriously. All you have to do is look at their track record. In Carrie Max Cook's case alone, they have jumped all over any jailhouse snitch that says that Carrie Max Cook confessed to them. Men without credibility. Men with no basis of fact in their statements. And they presented an argument for all these years that a reserve deputy sheriff says that Carrie Max Cook confessed to him in an elevator. As ridiculous as that sounds, for Carrie Max Cook to confess to an officer of the law while he's fighting for his innocence in a trial would just be insanity. But still, the Smith County DA's office has taken that for gospel for 25 years and are still arguing it today. So what Matt Bingham has in his hands right now is the statement 
of the flesh and blood son of Luella Mayfield, saying that she confessed. Now, like I said, I have no way of knowing whether that statement is credible or not. That's why I passed it on to the Smith County DA's office. And since that office has a track record for holding confession stories like this in extremely high regard, let's see if they actually investigate this one. So, Mr. Bingham, the ball is in your court. Thank you to Johnny Rhodes of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Make sure you go to iTunes and download a song or the whole album, Truth and Justice, the music. Or you can purchase songs on any other platform by going to truthandjusticemusic.com. Remember that all the proceeds for this go directly to Johnny Rhodes. Also, I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I thank all of today's sponsors, 4 Athletics Apparel, Blue Apron, and the new podcast, Found. I want to thank all of you, as always, for all of your engagement. Send me in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can always like the Facebook or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.